Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Have you ever watched someone's life end in slow motion? It's happening live on TV, millions of us watching. You can't take your eyes off it. It feels like one of those images that just gets stuck in your head, as if you were there, as if you were part of it. This is how we see it, a white plane flying by itself, blue sky all around. It's slim, graceful, six windows down each side. The wings, they're thin, almost elegant, and there are six people on board. One of them is this huge sports star. Everyone knows him, but you can't see anyone moving, not the pilot, not a passenger, no one. No word on the radio for what feels like ages, must be a couple of hours now. The fuel's running out, and from what everyone's saying, it's just autopilot keeping it up there. There are these two fighter jets. They're dark green, right up alongside. You know the type. Powerful. They can do almost anything. And those men flying them, they're trained for the most extreme situations. But they can't do anything. We can't do anything. So we watch this plane flying, and you think, what the hell is going on? This is Death of a Sports Star, a new podcast from Crowd Network. Young people die every day, in cars, hospitals, on nights out. So it shouldn't be any more tragic if it's someone who just happens to be amazing at sport. But it feels like it is, and it feels more shocking, and so many more of us care. So, that's it, that's the thing. Sports stars, they're like superheroes, but they're actually real. They can do things you and me just can't. And we know everything about them we think we do. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments. The ones when you're jumping around, screaming at your friends. You're lost in their moment. And then we see them when it's all gone wrong. When they're losers, not winners. And they're staring into space and you want someone to hug them, but no one does. In this series, we're going to explore the lives and deaths of sports stars who made us feel that way. Everyone cared about Payne Stewart, one way or the other. He was a golfer, yeah, but if you hated golf, you could still love him. Here's why. He'd been a spoilt kid, definitely, but he was changing. He had this look, a little bit 1930s gentleman, a lot more Ronald McDonald. It was the trousers, plus fours they're called, like a baggy short that ends tight just under the knee. Four inches under the knee, actually, that's the plus fours bit. And there was always a flat cap. He was unmissable. On the morning that plane took off, Stuart was 42 years old. 
a dad with two kids. Almost four hours later, he would fall eight miles to earth in the middle of a dusty, forgotten field. And then, questions. How? Why did nobody stop it? And did we really just watch it happen? And that image, you're thinking about it now. You're stuck with it. We all are. Payne Stewart was always different. Just ask his dad. And his dad was a decent player, by the way, before he became a salesman. He tells his son what any salesman would tell you. Different is good. Different is memorable. And memorable makes money. So that's what you see Stewart doing. Because golf is a pretty safe, dull sport in the 1980s. It looks middle-aged. And this is way before Tiger Woods came along with the muscles and cool and Nike adverts. Stewart, he's brash. He says what he wants. This is a time when America is trying to work out what sort of place it's going to be. Stuart, he's shouting like he knows. That's the big political stuff. And it matters in golf too, because the Europeans, they started winning America's big prizes. So there's the majors, the four big tournaments. Then there's the Ryder Cup, this epic, crazy three days every two years when it's Europe against the US. Europe have Nick Faldo. He's so safe. Yes, he wins loads, but he looks like everyone else. The only player who stands out is a blonde Australian called Greg Norman, partly because his nickname is the Great White Shark, partly because he wears a big straw hat. There's no one else. There's Safe Nick, there's the Aussie Shark, and there's Stuart. So when you see Payne all decked out in stars and stripes, it's brilliant, it's different. And that's good, remember? Different is memorable. Memorable makes money. There's a Ryder Cup just after the first Gulf War in 1991. Stewart leads the charge. America wins. He jumps in the sea to celebrate. Now he's better than memorable. He's unforgettable. Here's a quote. It makes him look a bit of an idiot, but he doesn't care. That's pain. Yes, I'm a patriotic person. For these people who disgrace the American way and burn our flag and do all of these things, I say don't live here and disgrace my country. Go live in the Middle East and see how you like it. Whoa. Now, there are golfers who win more tournaments. Stewart's never world number one. But he wins the biggies and he looks great doing it. Six foot one, light brown hair, lean and strong. Blue eyes, white teeth, lots of grins and whoops and yeehaws. You look at his swing, the way he hits the ball. It's beautiful. And even if you think it's a stupid sport, small ball, tiny target, miles away, you watch Stewart and it makes sense. And he's at his absolute best when everyone is watching. Not on quiet Thursdays or Fridays in those tournaments in the middle of nowhere that only golfers care about. Stuart is prime time. He does it on a Sunday afternoon. He's Captain America with a three iron. There's a swagger, charisma. He's the golfer who jumps out of golf and into your living room. And he's a man of his people. I'm very proud of being American, he says. I'm proud to pay taxes. I pay a lot of taxes but it sure beats the alternative. That is so pain. He wins this one tournament and just gives all the money to a hospital, the one in Florida where his dad died of cancer two years before. You see, you celebrate with him, but you suffer with him too. But you can't ignore the darker side, the arrogance, how he shouts first and thinks later. He likes watching The Magic, the basketball team in Orlando. He's got a great seat right by the action, but he shouts so much abuse at one player, so often the owners move his seat further away. 
He wins his first major, huge deal, and you should hear what he says about the poor guy he beats into second place. It's someone called Mike Reed. He's not safe Nick or the Great White Shark, nowhere near that level. He's an ordinary bloke. He's crying afterwards. He's never going to get a chance like this again. And then Stuart walks in, whooping, and says this, I'm not going to kid you about how I feel. His misfortune? It's my gain. He says he prayed he would win. These words, Lord, how about some good stuff for Payne Stewart this time? He's losing friends here. Another golfer shoves him up against a wall, says this, Stop, you didn't win this tournament. Mike Reed lost it. When Stewart wins another big one a couple of years later, it's all drama all over again. There's wind, there's rain. He wins in a playoff, which goes down a storm on TV. The whole thing is manic, thrilling, wild. The thing about storms is they blow themselves out. Stuart can't keep his charge going. What you can't see, what you don't know yet, is he's got attention deficit disorder. He's impulsive, can't concentrate, acts without thinking. Golf, yeah, it's all about small balls, tiny targets. But it's really about focus, planning, weighing up risks. So this diagnosis makes sense, but then it doesn't. It explains his character, but not his success. How has he managed to hold it together long enough to win tournaments lasting four days? But he can't keep doing it. ADHD, it's not well managed, not in the 90s, so he goes looking for help. There's a sports psychologist called Dick Coop. He'll be brilliant for him, but it's going to take time. So here's what Payne does. The wrong stuff. A golfer's clubs are like a surgeon's scalpel, a violinist's bow. You find a pairing that works for you. You don't change them. Not when you know they work. But Stuart's impulsive. He acts without thinking. And his golf isn't beautiful anymore. It's like that noise a needle makes when it scratches across a record. His form falls apart. He goes four years without winning a thing. He doesn't get picked for the Ryder Cup anymore. Why? Because he's not one of the best 12 golfers in the US. It's that simple. Primetime Captain America has gone. Okay, he's going to be distracted, so he finds distractions that work. He joins a blues band, starts playing harmonica. Next step, he can't concentrate. He needs a way of switching off, so he gets into fishing, just sitting and watching, waiting. Not chasing a prize now, waiting for one to come to him. Step three, structure. That comes from religion. Which is weird, because when he was at college in Dallas, at Southern Methodist University, it sort of passed him by. And now, it gives him a purpose, and a bit of peace. This is where we need to talk about his wife. Her name's Tracy. She's Australian. She likes golf, but the important bit is, she listens, and slows him down, and understands. And then the good stuff starts to come back. He nearly wins the US Open in 98. Probably should have done with the lead he had. He can't hold on. But at least it's Sunday and people are watching again. Remember his psychologist? Well, he's given him these tricks, these funny little routines for when the old demons come calling. It's his caddy, Mike Hicks, whose job it is to remind him of them. Caddies carry bags, clean clubs. But Hicks does more than that. These two, they've got something else. This is Hicks when he sees Stuart in a new pair of those trademark plus fours. Looking good, Billy Ray? This is Stuart winking back at him. Feeling good, Louis. After the empty years comes the US Open in 99, and it all comes right. Stuart's concentration is incredible. He chews tobacco to keep focus. He chews up Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, the greatest players in the world. He looks a different man. 
Sure, he's still in those baggy plus fours, but they're dark blue. They're almost boring. He's wearing a sleeveless navy raincoat. There are tall trees and pressure and noise all around, and you barely see him twitch. He needs to sink a long putt on the final hole of the final day to win. And he does it. He keeps his nerve. As the ball drops, he throws his right fist forward and he kicks his right leg back. You see it on telly and you see it in all the papers frozen in that pose. And you think, this will be how we remember him. Mike Hicks jumps into his arms. TV ratings are huge. He gets an escort from state police back to Hicks's house. They stop on the way for a 12-pack of beer and Stuart drinks half of them in the car. When they get home, they drink moonshine out the trophy until the sun comes up. He's back in the Ryder Cup team now. He plays brilliantly, part of an extraordinary comeback. It's hostile too. People have been drinking all day long. Now, this is what the old pain used to say about European golfers. On paper, they should be caddying for us. But that's gone. The man he's playing gets all sorts of abuse off the crowd, and Stuart comes to his rescue. He steps into the crowd. He's the one calming other people. This game is about sportsmanship. That's what he says, direct quote. In his early 40s, he's found his peace. He's worked out who he should be. He's still loud. It's just now the noises make you smile. You always wanted to watch him. Now you want him to win too. He's your guy at last. He's everyone's guy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all, is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. And so it's the morning of October the 25th, 1999. Feels like a lot of other days. Stuart is meant to be heading from home in Florida to Houston. Lots of the world's best golfers are. He's planning to stop off in Dallas, talk about building a new course for his old university, and then head on to a tournament. So he's up early with Tracy, his wife. It's a beautiful, clear autumn day. The sky is blue. The leaves are red and gold. He makes pancakes for his daughter Chelsea and son Aaron. At 7.30, Tracy takes the kids to school. Stuart kisses them goodbye for the final time. At a small airport, there's a pilot called Michael Kling. He's been at work an hour already. When First Officer Stephanie Bellagarig arrives, they inspect the Learjet. They load it with Jet A fuel, enough for pretty much five hours of flying time. They throw in a cool box of drinks, take off for Orlando International Airport just before 8 o'clock. Stuart's picked up by a guy called Van Arden. That's one of his agents. A few minutes later, they're at the airport saying hello to the pilots. There's also Robert Fraley, another one of Payne's agents. He's just been dropped off by his wife. Then there's an architect called Bruce Borland, who has come up from Palm Beach. He's the guy helping design the new course in Dallas. The mood in the cabin? Well, it's good. Pro golfers take private jets like you and I take taxis. It's quick 
convenient and ordinary part of an ordinary day. Captain Michael Kling has flown planes in the Air Force. He has thousands of hours flying time. Routine for him, routine for everyone. 47 Bravo Alpha, clearance follows. The ground controller is on the radio. You're cleared to the Dallas Love Field. 390 Bravo Alpha. They take off just before 20 past 9, heading north and then west for Dallas Fort Worth. Jacksonville Air Traffic Control take over. They give the go ahead to climb to 39,000 feet, cruising altitude. 390 Bravo Alpha. These are the final words ever heard from Learjet 47BA. Within two minutes, the flight is off course. It's heading too far north. Jacksonville call again. No response. They try three more times. Nothing. Nothing. This is serious now, so the US Air Force get involved. There's a young Air Force pilot called Chris Hamilton. He's high over Florida in an F-16 training flight. Half an hour after the last words from the Learjet, he's told to switch targets, chase down that plane. Over the radio, he asks two questions. One, type of aircraft. Two, nature of the problem. The reply spells it out. Nature of the problem, unknown. F-16 fighters move fast, and Hamilton closes in quickly. He gets within 600 metres of the Learjet. He makes two radio calls to the plane. Lear 47, Bravo Alpha. Then the same again. Lear 47, Bravo Alpha. No reply. So he stares out of his cockpit window and tries to work out what the hell's going on. Both engines are running. Everything appears normal except for one thing. There's no movement inside. He edges a little closer, gets on the radio again, back to base. Looks like the front cockpit's either frosted or basically condensed over. I can't see into the cockpit. No response from the target aircraft, no apparent damage to the aircraft. Hamilton dips a wing and heads off to refuel. Two more F-16s are sent to intercept. This time, it's the Oklahoma Air National Guard. Twelve minutes later, they've got eyes on the plane. The lead pilot radios back to his lot. We're not seeing anything in sight. It could just be a dark cockpit. He is not reacting, moving, or anything like that. He should be able to see us by now. We are told the occupants of the plane are non-responsive. Here's the basic science. Aircraft cabins are pressurised. They have to be, so we get enough oxygen. Don't get enough? First, you feel sleepy, and then your brain and your body shut down quickly. And the ice on the inside of the Learjet's window is bad, really bad. It means the pressure inside the cabin's the same as the air outside, which means there's nowhere near enough oxygen for anyone to survive. Here's what should happen. A loud horn on board as soon as the pressure drops too far. Then the pilot hits the emergency button, oxygen masks drop down, and the plane descends to a safe height. None of this seems to be going on here, just the plane flying on autopilot, nine miles up. Now people on the ground are finding out. There's breaking news on CNN. We are told the occupants of the plane are non-responsive. A golf reporter calls Stuart. He knows he uses a Learjet, and he knows he's flying this morning. The call goes straight to voicemail. It's Stuart's voice, recorded, thanking callers and asking them to leave a message. The final word, of course it is, is simple. Goodbye. Caddy Mike Hicks is on the golf course in Houston. He gets a call from a friend who tells him to turn on the TV. The latest news update, a professional golfer is on the plane. Tracy Stewart is at home. She dials her husband's phone. Nothing. She can see him, almost. But she can't reach him. He's there, 
but he's not. It's just her in her Florida kitchen and the TV. Friends keep arriving and she barely notices them. Everyone is watching now. You can't make sense of it, but you can't turn it off either. No one's ever seen anything like it. Plane crashes, you understand. We've all seen the footage. We understand they're impossible to survive. But this plane hasn't crashed. It's flying in a straight line. It still has fuel. From Florida to Mississippi, over the border into Tennessee, and now Missouri and Iowa. Can't they do something? Can't they get the oxygen back on? Can't it land on autopilot? Can't they all just wake up? You don't want to listen to the answers. More F-16s are sent up, this time from North Dakota. Now there are four jet planes flying in formation around the Learjet. Four fighter jets. Four pairs of eyes. Stuart's golfing career, it soared and it fell and it soared again. Now the autopilot on the Learjet is doing the same thing. It climbs and drops, climbs and drops. The same looping pattern, now sketched against the blue Iowa sky. The reality? No one can get onto this plane. No one can make it land. It's going to keep soaring and dipping until the fuel runs out. And the fuel will run out. The only question is when. No one on the news wants to spell it out. And you don't want to believe it. But this plane is going to crash. It's just when and where. A Learjet crashing in an empty field kills everyone on board. A Learjet crashing in a city or a town is much worse. It's the difference between tragedy and catastrophe. And so here comes the second horrible wave of speculation. Will the Pentagon get the plane shot down? If it gets to the border, could the Canadian Prime Minister send out an order? And then the question no longer matters. One of the jets reports the Learjet is rolling right. The engine on that side has flared out. The fuel's gone. Then the left engine goes too. The plane falls into a nosedive. Almost four hours after it took off from Orlando, Learjet 47 Bravo Alpha begins its final descent. North Dakota's a quiet place. When two F-16 streak past, you notice. There's a hunter down on the ground, going after pheasants. He sees something out the corner of his eye. No sound and no explosion, but something smashing into the ground a couple of miles away. Then it's the cars, hundreds of them, all charging west. Ambulances, fire trucks, sirens. When they get there, a crater. 42 feet long, 21 feet wide, 8 feet deep. A brown field, and nothing that looks like a plane. Nothing that ever looked alive. Just one small piece of metal makes sense. A harmonica. Crushed. Flat. Sometimes, when a famous person dies, you get that sense those mourning loved that person but never really knew them. Not with Payne Stewart. Across Florida, in his hometown of Springfield, around first America and then the world, this is a man being remembered in the present tense, not the past. His fishing buddy, Paul Azinger, breaks down. He physically breaks, falling to his knees, unable to stand. Others race to the family home, to Tracy and the kids. Nothing else on the news, nothing else in the papers. Everywhere, the same shock. Golf loves numbers, career victories, top ten finishes, scoring average, greens in regulation, driving distance, all those percentage points frozen in time. Death with stats is the eulogy. A man who is hard to define has become a series of decimal points. At the Tour Championship, where Stewart was supposed to be teeing off, a bagpipe plays on the first hole. For the final round, most players wear plus fours. At the next US Open, the tournament Stewart helped make special, 21 of his friends will line up before play and hit shots into the ocean. 
and we're still trying to make sense of it all. Federal investigators find the cockpit voice recorder. This is the National Transportation Safety Board. They can't hear voices on the 30-minute recording, and there's no obvious reason why the pressure went. They talk about how the plane hit the ground at near supersonic speed, is their final verdict. The probable cause of this accident was incapacitation of the flight crew members as a result of their failure to receive supplemental oxygen following a loss of cabin pressurization for undetermined reasons. Following the depressurization, the pilots did not receive supplemental oxygen in sufficient time and or adequate concentration to avoid hypoxia and incapacitation. A possible explanation for the failure of the pilots to receive emergency oxygen is that their ability to think and act decisively was impaired because of hypoxia before they could don their oxygen masks. That's a lot of words, not science. So other theories pile up. Some are put out by experts, others dreamed up by people who have never looked at a plane and never met Payne Stewart. James Watkins is the president of Sunjet, the company that owns the Learjet. He's not sure about the idea that something went wrong with the oxygen system. He can't work out why six people, all of different builds, would all fall asleep at the same time. He points out that Captain King actually taught classes on dealing with oxygen deprivation, that no one appeared to have time to even push a button. He wonders whether it was something else, something violent that leaves no one with any time to react. But that almost never happens in aviation, and if it did, how has the plane stayed in one piece for another three hours? Other Learjets have met the same mysterious end. Sixteen years before, a plane in Europe also kept on flying on autopilot, no response, until crashing in the sea. Nine years back, the same thing happened in Mexico. Watkins keeps getting weird calls. People saying it's a plot, an assassination, an argument on board, a shooting and a suicide. And so, questions remain. What really happened up there? Did Payne Stewart know what was happening? What did he feel in his final moments? What thoughts were in his mind? Did he ever say his own goodbyes nine miles up in those blue American skies? Hypoxia, say the experts, is a seductive way to die. You don't panic. You don't choke. It's a warmth in the face, a feeling of indifference, of no longer noticing anything around you. You don't notice you not noticing anything. Maybe this brings some comfort to the five men and one woman on board. Maybe it brings a little to their grieving families. Maybe the ones who suffered most were those left behind. Tracy Stewart tries to make sense of it in her own way. When she prays, she says she asks God her own question. Why? Something else is eventually found at the crash site. It's a bracelet Stuart used to wear. Capital letters on it. WWJD. What would Jesus do? Tracy wears it every day. That's how she makes sense of it. Her way. And so this is the final act of Payne Stewart. An acre of Dakota Prairie, fenced off with barbed wire. There's a square of grey concrete. A stone from the crash site makes a small memorial. The names of the four passengers are on it, in alphabetical order. Then the two pilots. There's a Bible verse too. It's decades on now. The flow of visitors has dried up. There isn't much reason to come here. The winds blow and the rains come and the stone sits there, blasted by both. Stuart feels a long way away. The charisma, the colour, the easy grin. The images in your mind? They're of a small white jet plane flying by itself through an empty sky. But there's another image too. A man punching the air, kicking a leg back. A man jumping into the arms of his friend, dancing together. 
surrounded by thousands of spectators, watched on television by millions more. A man who jumped out of his sport and into your life. And that's the story of Payne Stewart. It was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Tom Price. It was edited by Steve Jones. Our music partner is BMG Production Music. For research, we used The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, a book written by Kevin Robbins, as well as the archives of CNN, ESPN and Golf World. If you want more episodes of Death of a Sports Star, then subscribe to our feed and you'll find the stories of Kobe Bryant, Philip Hughes and Flojo, the Olympic champion who may have been the greatest female sprinter ever. There'll be new episodes out every Monday. We've also released a new series called Death of a Rockstar. And if you listen to true crime podcasts, make sure you check out Crowd Network's 10-part documentary, Murder in House 2. It's about the US Marines and the Iraq War, but it's really about a young man facing 18 counts of murder. It's about what war does to people and how hard it can be to uncover the truth. It's called Murder in House 2, and it is fascinating. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minterdial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle or padel as it's called in North America. This is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. 
I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.